This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley, and we've all made it to the end of the week in one piece, apart from you, Gavin. Uh, but before we, I tell you what's coming up on today's episode, just to thank you for all of your lovely messages about yesterday's episode about the Sultan of Swing, Sir David Butler. It's just a great listen. If you haven't caught up with it yet, listen to it after today's episode. You've got Jeremy Vine and David Dimbleby and Michael Creek and Peter Snow. It's a great listen. Uh, so thank you for all of your messages. Do get in touch. You can email me, matt at times.radio, matt at times.radio. If there's anything uh, you want to get off your chest about the podcast or ideas or things that we could do, uh, or do post comments on the uh, iPod. Or do post comments on the Apple Podcasts because it's quite good for the charts. Right, coming up on today's episode then, another historical look, a really nice chat with Dick Tavern. He was a, he's one of the surviving members of Harold Wilson's government in the 1960s. He talks about becoming an MP 60 years ago, uh, working with Harold Wilson and Roy Jenkins, and then later campaigning against Brexit with Liz Truss. It's a lovely listen. That's coming up in just a moment. Uh, we'll have the columnist panel in a set. But first, as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learn that Gavin Williamson has again been told to... Frankly, Russia should go away. It should shut up. Yeah, that should have been edited better. We learned what Keir Starmer thinks of Gavin Williamson. A cartoon bully with a pet spider. Uh, we learned that Boris Johnson is giving a peerage to Ross Kempsell, who asked him this tough question. What do you do to relax? What do you do to switch off? Uh, that's a seat in the House of Lords for services to journalism and tea-making. Uh, we learned that a new museum is opening at Perth City Hall. They had a vote on what to call it, and 60% of people voted for Perth Museum. Uh, we learned that Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross doesn't like lying. But that's lying in the Scottish Parliament. That's what Nicola Sturgeon gets away with. Uh, but lying is okay sometimes. When you, so when you said you thought she'd win an election, were you lying? Uh, well, it was a question on question time. Yeah. Did I think uh, Liz Truss could win the next election? And I think it would have been a massive story if any Conservative panellist had said a Conservative leader couldn't win the next election when we're over two years away. So you can lie if it would otherwise be a big story. We learned that Labour frontbencher Stephen Kinnock thinks we should all have ID cards. I think it can't be beyond the wit of man. Well, has he seen the wit of the men who've been running the country? Uh, we learned that Scot- uh, Scottish Conservative MSP Stephen Kerr isn't a potato. Here's something I never thought I'd have to say in the Scottish Parliament. But contrary to the Scottish Parliament's Twitter account, I can confirm I am not a potato. 
But the main thing we learned this week is that Matt Hancock is a very, very weird man. See the human side of the guy behind the podium. There's so few ways in which politicians can show that we're human beings. That's a load of slurry, just pulled on my head. Don't get me singing, I'm terrible. No, Listening to my favourite song, when you saw you... What's it called? Um, perfect, it's called Perfect. <laughs> Lovely stuff, that's what we learned this week. He really is a very odd man. Right, uh, now it's time for this. The Columnists with Formel, James Forsyth and Melanie Reed on Times Radio. Uh, yes, it's a Friday, so it must be James Forsyth. Morning, James. Morning, Matt. Nice to have you with us. And Melanie Reed. Morning, Matt. Morning. Nice to have you both here. Right, let's talk about Quasi Quateng. The man of the moment a few moments ago, uh, and then uh, he got the sack. Uh, and he's spoken for the first time, speaking to Talk TV about uh, being sacked. And I was just quite interested both... I'm quite keen to get James's sort of insider's take on it and Melanie's outsider's take, because I think it, it probably... I'm not totally sure it's going to stand up to scrutiny in both directions. Uh, this is Kwasi <laughs> Kwarteng uh, explaining, apparently, he told Liz Truss it was all going a bit too quickly. Well, I said, um, I said actually after the budget, that because we were going very fast, uh, even after the mini-budget, we were going at breakneck speed. And I said, um, you know, we should slow down. Slow down. And what did she say? And she said, well, I've only got two years. And I said, you'll have two months if you carry on like this. And that's, I'm afraid, what happened. Um, and that was something that I said to her uh, uh, in October, after the mini-budget. So I suppose you rather wish she'd listened to you at the time. Well, it's not... Look, I, I, you know, I'm responsible. I'm not going to wash my hands with it. I'm, I was Chancellor of the Exchequer. I was also uh, part of the, uh, the top team. Um, but I, looking back, I think we could have had a more measured approach. So uh, he told Liz Trust to slow down after the mini-budget that crashed the economy, James. Is that, a f- is that a good enough explanation? It was only after it all went wrong he thought to pipe up. So I, I think there are two things going on here. I think the first is that Quasi Quasi kind of overcorrected. He looked at the relationship between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, where Rishi Sunak kept telling Boris Johnson, no, 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 you've got to pay for that. You, you, that costs too much. That's too expensive. You've got to balance the books. And he, in the, I mean, his phrase was he wanted to be a facilitator. So I think his initial view of the job, the Chancellor, is right, the Prime Minister wants to do this, I'll just go and do it. Uh, and the mini-budget was a kind of, you know, Liz Truss and Quasi Quasi see the world in a very similar way. And that mini-budget was an expression of their worldview. I think his initial reaction was, you know, remember he went on TV on the Sunday and suggested that, you know, there were more tax cuts to come and the like. But I think then as the week went on, he got more concerned about how the markets were reacting. I think he instinctively was more comfortable with saying, right, we're, we're going to do spending cuts, we're going to do restraint. I think this trust kind of thought the markets were suffering from kind of groupthink. And so I think there was a difference in that, that, that week afterwards. Um, but I think, you, I think the, the, the kind of, I think in some way the, the whole mistake of it was not that neither of them saw that the markets were changing their approach. The markets were going from a world in which they had been very relaxed about governments running big deficits to one in which they were suddenly, you know, much more charry and wanted to know how things were paid for. And I think you could see in August as gilt yields began to just, they weren't rising dramatically, but they were rising steadily. And I think at that point, what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng should have done and said, hang on a second, 
is now the moment when we want to kind of you know put turn the spotlight onto us and announce and announce and kind of boast about our radicalism. Uh, Melanie, what did you? What do you make of this? The sort of um, James is, is is right that it was only when things started going wrong he seems to have piped up, and you know he, he went from saying you know this is just the start, there's more to come, and then it turns out privately he was saying to Liz Trust, steady on. He sounded like a schoolboy explaining a bad report to his dad. I thought <laughs> it 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 wasn't me, Dad. It wasn't me. It wasn't me that trashed the economy. It was a big girl did it and ran away. Um, it was, I, I, I thought, it, frankly, I thought it was pretty awful. Um, what, what is it about, what is it about these people? What is it about politicians that, that make, they don't, they just don't have the, 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 the ability to say, no, actually, you know, I was part of it. It was my idea. Um, it was my fault, me bad. I, I just, uh, you know, I was just, in, I, he's saying I'm just following the following the orders of a headstrong woman, basically. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I no respect. I, I'm he needs to be less arrogant and a bit more humble before he would get my respect. Well, let's 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 see if if this this this, this next clip uh, helps, Melanie. This was uh, when he was asked by Tom Newton Dunn if uh, if he wanted to apologise. I'm not going to um, uh, I'm not going to comment on that. I think there was a it, it was regrettable. Um, and I think people were very, very concerned. Interest rates were going up. Uh, the Bank of England has put interest rates up. All of that was happening. Um, but there was turbulence, and, and I, I regret that. Well, re- regret is a way Look, of we expressing... Can get into, we can get into all of well, this. Well, I'm asking if you want to say, sorry, you obviously do, or uh, you don't. Which is it? Um, I, I don't want to relive the past. I just want to focus on you know, where we are next week. I think there was turbulence, and I regret that. <laughs> well, For I think I sake. think there was turbulence, and I regret that. But I didn't play any. I personally didn't play any part in it. Um, yeah, Melanie, you're you're not persuaded by that 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 expression of sort of abstract regret. No, I find it sickening. I just, I just, you know, th- these people were playing with themselves. They were they wrote a book together. They were great friends. They were thick as thieves. They were ideologues, and they imposed it on the country, and they screwed up majorly. And 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 now he's saying, oh, 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 yeah, well, it was all her idea. Yeah. Do you know what, what's interesting in the interview? He he's now ghosting her. He, she, he 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 got a. He says he she called him two days ago, and and he hasn't called her back yet. <laughs> I mean, I think, come I mean, on. Go on, James. I, I think to be fair, she she he did find out he was sacked from Steve Swinford's text. Which, when you've been friends with someone for for decades, you think they might they might have told you before they told the first of the times. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I mean, you could. I think the ghosting is perhaps understandable. Um, do, what does this mean for his future career, uh, James? Is it all over for Kwasi Kwarteng, or is this the start of? sort of rehabilitating himself without having to go into the jungle? Uh, I, I, I think he is the least likely politician I could ever imagine to go and I'm a celebrity. Um, I, 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 get, I don't get the impression that this, that, that is what he wants. Because I think, uh, as to what Melanie... Melanie's reaction, I think, is very, is very telling. In that I think if he was planning to try and come back, you would do more of a kind of contrition and apology rather than the kind of, I'm not going to comment on that line that he went for. 
Um, uh, yeah, that is a good, I suppose that is a good point. That is a good, uh, that is a good point. Uh, let's move on from uh, Quasi Quartek in a minute. We'll talk about your column, uh, James, and uh, the, the, the broader possible change in the culture uh, in Westminster. And uh, we'll talk about uh, Big Ben bonging again. Uh, we'll do that in just a sec. It's Matt Cholley on Times Radio in association with Mastercard Strive's UK programme. You can find out more at mastercard.co.uk forward slash strive. James, in your column today, uh, you've... Uh, reflecting on the demise of Gavin Williamson and his dark arts and sweary text messages, do you think actually this does mark a sort of cha- a, sh- a shift in the culture in Westminster? Yeah, I think a generation ago, the idea that messages between you know, two former chief whips, whatever, however they got on with each other or not, would have ended up on the front page of a newspaper would have been unthinkable. And, and even more outlandish would have been the idea that a deputy chief whip would go on TV to talk about the workings of the whip's office to the detriment of the person who was the chief when she was there. I think it tells you that that culture of a murder of the whip's office, which lasted for a remarkably long time, ha- has gone. Now, I think you can say that that's no bad thing, that, you know, that the, the cultures of secrecy uh, nearly always lead to dubious behaviour. But I think it does pose a question of, you know, what do you want the whips to be? You know, they used to be kind of regimental sergeant majors. They're not that anymore. But nor are they a kind of fully functioning HR department like you would have in, in any other workplace. And you've also got to get around the fact that, you know, ultimately, governments have to be able to get their business through the House of Commons. And that means that they need people who can tell them, you know, have you got the votes? And if they haven't got the votes, people who can who, who can who can work out how you could get the votes. Um, Melanie, how are you as a, as a non-inhabitant of the Westminster village? Have you been surprised by the latest rounds of revelations about what goes on? Not really, because I think I think I think everybody understands the the, the concept of the dark arts, because everybody to some extent suffered from it, be it at primary school or whatever. Um, I mean, I, I personally, I, lo- I, I it's not often that that um, comment pieces make make me laugh, but I love the line in James's column about you know two things you never want to see uh, uh, see being made are laws and sausages, and it's. <laughs> You know the the thought of what it's rather it's rather awful actually, isn't it? To think that to get to get business through the House of Commons to get to get a bill through that there there had to be this sort of um, low level intimidation and sort of carrot carrot waving and arm twisting. Um, but I I mean I for one would welcome you know would welcome the the world becoming slightly more woke in in if if that's if that's the right expression because i do think we're all different now and we expect we expect higher behavior people in the modern world don't don't want to they they won't put up with that kind of behavior and actually um, james the interesting thing is it this feels slightly borne out of the fact that the particularly under david cameron a big influx of tory mps had you know, they were business people, they'd run their own businesses, they'd had other jobs, and actually they've come in and gone, what on earth is going on here? You know, they, they, you know, it's Sarah Wallace that made a big fuss about bringing in a former GP, and she just said, I'm not here to, to just be told what to do like I'm at school, and, and that, that's, that seems to have shifted the culture, that suddenly like Wendy Morton's clearly happy for her private text exchange with Gavin Winnison to end up in the papers. No, I, I think there is, there is a challenge, which is, um, on the one hand, you know, MPs don't want to turn up and just be lobby fodder uh, and, you know, just be told, oh, you, you know, and it's obviously not a good idea if MPs are voting for things when they've got no idea what they're voting for. But I think there is also another problem, which is that if parties are going to deliver on the manifestos on which they stand on at elections, you do need some kind of collective discipline. So you can't have a situation where MPs just vote 
for the things that that they like because you know look, look at the kind of decisions that are coming down the track if you did that you know ev- no one would want to vote for the spending cuts and the tax rises but everyone would want to vote for the extra money for for, for this or that and i think so i think the kind of question is how do you strike a balance between these two things uh, and i think i mean I, look I think Melanie is, is, is clearly completely right that the old school whips office tactics just aren't going to work. They just are. They just offend modern sensibilities, and, and and so they are. They are. They are not a runner. I think that you know U.S. style port barrel politics, where <laughs> you know the MP for X place votes for it because you know they're going to get funding for a new school gym in their constituency. I, I don't mean the public will like the idea of people horse trading with their money. Yeah. Um, so then the question becomes, you know, what what is the answer? I and mean, the only answer I can see is a kind of form of, of, of bottom-up collective self-discipline where people work out, right, you know, we stood on this yeah, manifesto. Best, so we... best of luck with that, Joe. Even if one says it, you, 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 right, you let... realise the flaw in the argument. We need to move on because in, uh, in a few minutes' time, we're going to hear Big Ben sounds uh, as it, uh, after all the repairs they've had uh, to mark the beginning of the two-minute silence we mark Armistice Day. And then from Sunday, it's going to be in full working order for the first time in over five years. Uh, well, um, uh, a few months ago, I went up the Elizabeth Tower uh, to see some of the restorations. Let's just take a listen to this. This is Matthew Hamlin, senior clerk of the Elizabeth Tower Restoration Project, giving me a tour of the bell tower. It's going to be quite interesting when we reconnect the clock and the bells because there are a lot of people who work in Parliament who never have heard it. Yeah. The whole of the 2019... We turned the bells off uh, in the summer of 2017. Yeah. Um, and obviously we sounded them for New Year's Eve and Remembrance Sunday and Armistice Day all the way through, but we haven't regularly chimed the bells since August 2017. Yeah. So uh, there are a lot of people who've come to work in Parliament, a lot of members of Parliament, yeah. who've never heard it chiming They've regularly. never had it as that reminder and that they're late for a week. It may come a bit of a shock yeah, if you hear exactly. a bell ring every 15 minutes. Now, what would it be like if we were here and it, w- it was the top of the hour? Is it possible to stand here? You'd have ear defenders in. Yeah. Uh, I've been here when it happened on a tour years ago, so yeah. you, you, can, you're lined, you can be lined up. What you would hear, just as we reached midday, say, yeah. you would, these hammers, yeah. you see each bell has a hammer, yeah. including Big Ben, and these four bells at midday would play out the Westminster chimes, yeah. the, whole, the whole thing, and then at exactly 12 o'clock, the main hammer, which is round the side, yeah. on Big Ben, would then chime at 12, and he's very, very loud. Yeah. So it's all right coming up here and doing it once, but you wouldn't want to be <laughs> on a daily basis. You wouldn't want to be working up here yeah. with it going off every fifteen minutes. And the other thing, famously about Big Ben, in fact, one of the things about the project is Big Ben is the only bit we didn't do anything to. Uh, the bells are fine, uh, so we renovated the hammers, so you can see, like all the rest of this cast iron, yeah. it's been taken apart, cleaned, conserved, and put back together, basically like it's brand new. Yeah. Uh, and you can see on all the cast iron here, we've done the same thing. Every single bit of the, I forget how many hundreds or thousands of components, was taken apart like Meccano. Uh, and uh, is that, it, the most extraordinary thing, let's not be cynical for just a moment, James. The restoration of Big Ben, the clock tower, is it's so impressive. Every time I walk across Westminster Bridge, it looks amazing. Yeah, and, and, and it was so sad when it was covered up for so long, but, but it does... And, and I think also that the timbre of the bells is, you know, there is something kind of unique about hearing Big Ben chime. Yeah. And, 
you know, and I, I, and the other day I was, I was, I was, I was walking from the spectators of Parliament, and the light was shining on the clock face, and it, it just is an absolutely magnificent sight, and you, you do realise like, how lucky we are to work somewhere that, that that people come from all over the world to see. You know, we're we very fortunate like that. Just very briefly, Melanie, are you glad? I mean, I'm not sure you'll be able to hear hear them in Scotland, but are you glad that Big Ben's going to be back bonging? I do, because I think it represents symbolism in a much more fragmented world. I mean, look back at the war, my parents fought in it, perhaps your grandparents fought in it. And I think it really represents something for all of us. Oh, it's an absolutely extraordinary thing. Lovely to speak to you both, as ever. James Forsyth and Melanie uh, Reid there. You can read James's column online or pick up a copy of the paper today. And if you want to listen back to what happened when I went up the the clock tower, uh, you can uh, find that on the Red Box podcast, because it was... uh, I think there's a video online as well, if you, uh, because it was ex- absolutely extraordinary, the work uh, that they've uh, done. And, uh, and right now, services are being held across the country to mark the anniversary of the end of the First World War. Uh, we are seeing pictures of the last post being played uh, at uh, the National Ar- uh, Memorial Arboretum. Uh, a, a small crowd has gathered at the, uh, the Cenotaph in uh, Whitehall. Of course, the full, the full parade will take place on uh, on Sunday morning, uh, the traditional uh, Remembrance Sunday uh, uh, ceremony will take place. James Forsyth and Melanie Reid there, and of course you can read them both in the Times every week. James on a Friday, Melanie on a Saturday in the Saturday magazine. You can read me on a Saturday as well. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Dick Tavern. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing. Sixty years ago, a young barrister named Dick Tavern arrived in the House of Commons as a new MP. While outside, Britain was in the grip of the early days of the swinging 60s. In Parliament, it was still dominated by many of the big political beasts of the war years. Aged just 33, Dick Tavern became Labour MP for Lincoln in a by-election in October 1962, when Winston Churchill was still an MP. He actually walked out of my maiden speech. Oh, what, because he didn't like it or he was no, just no, he was headed he, for lunch? He wasn't, I don't think he could hear anything. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, what was Parliament like in 1962 when you became it an MP? It's very different from what it is now. Uh, I mean, apart from anything else, I think the whole atmosphere was very different. 
when I came in as a Labour MP, young Labour MP, I admired a lot of the Conservatives because they were people of great stature. I don't think that's what you'd say today. Uh, Macmillan, for example, I mean, he became Prime Minister shortly after I got into Parliament. And he was a person of vision. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, of course, he was always a great unifier. And, of course, the other thing about Macmillan, he was always a very strong pro-European. And then, of course, Nye Bevan was a person one admired enormously. He'd been very, very successful. I mean, the, the way in which he introduced the health service was a great feat. And I think he would have been a great prime minister, although he had so sometimes varied un uh, unorthodox views. But as an orator, he was absolutely unparalleled. He had this slight stutter and this lovely Welsh accent, but he had such imagination. The seeds of Dick Tavern's arrival in the Commons had been sown a little earlier, back in 1959. Hugh Gateskill, then the Labour leader, wanted to abolish Clause 4 of the Labour Party's constitution, committing to common ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange. In other words, the nationalisation of industry. This was Gateskill. There seems no doubt that if we are to accept the majority view of those who fought this election, nationalisation on balance lost us votes. Sound familiar? Well, it was some 40 years before Tony Blair achieved Gateskill's aims. It requires a modern constitution that says what we are in terms the public cannot misunderstand and the Tories cannot misrepresent. A young Dick Tavern had been the only person willing to speak out in favour of Gateskill's plan. It was a most unpleasant conference because there was a great sense of betrayal of socialism. And Hugh Gateskill made his proposal and he had a very rough time and he was bitterly criticised. And Barbara Castle was then Labour Party. Very, very admirable person. I mean, she was a very fiery left-winger when she's in opposition. Barbara Castle violently attacked Hugh Gateskill. But in fact, the only person who spoke up for Hugh Gateskill's plan for getting rid of Clause 4, uh, where the Labour Party backed nationalisation of industries, was you. I was booed. Wow. And because I was booed, that's how I got into Parliament. Uh, because people had noticed this, I mean... The economist singled me out for being the person who actually spoke for Gateskill's proposal. Yeah. About a year later, just over, there was a by-election in Lincoln and Labour was beginning to recover. And they were having some serious conversation about They said, well, we must get the right sort of person for this to put the new Labour Party forward. And Hugh Gateskill then said, what about that chap <laughs> who made that speech in my defence at the conference? Uh, uh, and who actually got booed for it. He's the sort of person we want. In 1963, Hugh Gateskill died. He was replaced as Labour's leader of the opposition by Howard Wilson. A year later, the Conservative Prime Minister, Alec Douglas Hume, went to the country. There now follows an election broadcast on behalf of the Labour Party. <laughs> we are making in this election will affect every family and every member of every family. Let's get right down to the problems that practically all of us face today. First is the problem of making ends meet. To the surprise of many, Howard Wilson won. At the age of 48, he was the youngest Prime Minister since Rosebery in 1894. 18 months later, Roy Jenkins became Home Secretary 
His great admirer, Dick Taverne, went along for the ride. And in fact, he was the one who did invite me to become his junior minister, especially to help promote some of the reforms that he wanted to carry out as Home Secretary. And he was a terrifically successful Home Secretary. Even more in his year and a half in the Home Office than had been achieved in history by all the home, other Home Secretaries. Abolished flogging in prisons, abolished theatre censorship, of course, decriminalised homosexuality, uh, legalised abortion. I mean, the reforms were numerous. And he got a presentation to the police at the end of his time for the services to the police. How did he achieve so much? Was it because of his concern that Labour wouldn't get into government and then when it did, it wouldn't last very long? So you had to get on with things? No, I don't think so. He'd got his plans very carefully laid. Yeah. I mean, he was first offered to be as, uh, an office after Labour got in to be Secretary of State for Education. He said, I'm not very good on that subject, don't know much about it. But if by any chance the Home Secretary retired, the post I would like yeah. as the Home Office, because I've done a lot of work on that. Yeah. And from the moment he entered the Cabinet, he was absolutely dominant. He, nobody else would have got through the homosexual law reforms because the Labour people on the whole didn't like it. You know, my constituency, I was told, uh, why are you spending your time in office in the Parliament talking about homosexual law reform? You should be talking about unemployment. It was not popular. Uh, Wilson was reluctantly allowed it to go through. Callaghan was dead against it. Wilson didn't vote in any of the votes on, on homosexual law reform. He didn't approve of the whole thing. But Roy was so dominant. Crossman said when he entered the cabinet he was dominant. By the time he ended up as Chancellor, successful Chancellor, he was omnipotent. While Dick Tavern was very close to Roy Jenkins, relations with the Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, were slightly more tricky. Well, I didn't get on with him very well, and I disapproved me to post Gate School. Actually, Crossman, whom I saw quite a lot of, proposed to him when he became leader. He says, why don't you take one of the young Gateskillites as your PPS? Why don't you take Dick Tavern? Oh, I don't trust him. <laughs> I distrust him. Well, I just don't trust him. We never found out why. No. <laughs> saved me a very difficult decision. Yeah. I think I would have had to refuse. But still, I saw all his bad sides. A week's a short time in politics. Didn't like to think long time. Chopping and changing quite often. And yet, in retrospect, I think he was a successful Prime Minister. I mean, he it's kept us out of the Vietnam War without spoiling our relations with America. And through his manoeuvrings over Europe, which was sometimes pro and sometimes anti, uh, and going for the referendum, kept us within the European Union, yeah. Union through. His, so he had some considerable achievements. And he was also personally very agreeable. I think I misjudged him. Oh, that's interesting. With the benefit of hindsight. In retrospect... Uh, he was, I think, much more, much more skilled operator and a more effective one um, and a good leader for the Labour Party. Then in 1969, Roy Jenkins was sent to the Treasury as Chancellor and Dick Tavern followed, becoming Financial Secretary and overseeing the process of decimalisation. As that strange song from the BBC explained, it meant no more shillings.
Never mind the thruppence, there was bigger trouble in store. In the 1970 general election, Labour under Harold Wilson lost in a surprise defeat to the Conservatives under Edward Heath. Now in opposition, Labour tore itself apart over the question of Britain's place in Europe. When I was uh, in office, Harold Wilson had appeared and was very pro-European. But when it came to the fact that Heath was taking us in, he agreed to have a three-line whip to vote against Europe because that might bring down the Conservative government. So I really felt that this was not a time you should want. And I told my constituency, which was a, a very militant left-wing constituency, that I was going to vote for Europe. And they said, if you vote against a party three-line whip and for the Conservative government, we will deselect you. So I did, and they did. <laughs> and they did. And I was actually quite f- pleased to do it, because I didn't like the way the Labour Party was yeah. going. It was an extraordinary battle with his local Labour Party, led by Leo Beckett. And after being deselected, Dick Traverne triggered a by-election, stood as an independent Democratic Labour candidate and won. He won again in the March 1974 election, but in October 1974, he lost to Margaret Beckett. It was a, actually, I felt a sort of sense of liberation because Labour was going the wrong way and I had this local party which insisted on that I had to do what the party bosses said. Mm. Now, this will be a story that will be familiar to many as the Labour Party drifts left, discontented centrists walk away with varying degrees of, well, failure. A decade after Dick Deverde in the early 1980s, the formation of the SDP by the gang of four Labour MPs, Bill Rogers, Shirley Williams, Roy Jenkins and David Owen, briefly appeared to herald a dramatic redrawing of the political landscape. But they failed to live up to that promise in the 1983 election. And then in 2019, seven Labour MPs quit in protest at Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, forming the independent group which, with some Conservative MPs, became Change UK. They all lost their seats in December 2019. So after 60 years of watching history repeat itself, is Dick Deverne surprised at the resilience of the two old parties, Labour and the Conservatives? Yes. Uh, actually, it very nearly happened during my by-election because I met Roy Jenkins at the party and he said, let's go and have dinner. And, he, and I then said to him, look, I think I'm going to win the by-election. Uh, I can't be sure. Now, if you were to join me, we would win overwhelmingly. It would be your victories, anything else. And actually, one might find that there was so much 
interested in my by-election at that stage in the idea of a social democrats and liberals joining mm -hmm. together, you might find that we started a new party because you bring some Labour MPs with you. Yes, he said, about a dozen. I said, I don't think you get a dozen. <laughs> you, and at that stage, he wouldn't have got Bill Rogers yeah. and Shirley Williams. Who then later did break away. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, they waited for the SDP, which yeah. is much later. Case. But I said to him, yes, Roy, but at this point, you have got a popularity which, you may, not, which may not last. And he was very popular. Cab drivers used to wind down their windows and say to him, say, when they saw Roy Jenkins, say, stick to your guns, mate. Yeah. And the fact of people sticking to their guns is a very popular thing. Yeah. I won that by-election not because of the feelings about Europe, but because of Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke argued that an MP was not a delegate who yeah. did as he was told, but as somebody who used his own judgment. And I made that very clear in my by-election, and it was a very popular stand. After leaving the Commons behind, it didn't mean he left politics altogether. More than 50 years ago, he was the first director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the independent economic think tank which cast a critical eye over the nation's finances. I was aware of the fact that academics always looked at the economic arguments, but tax changes, for example, depended a great knowledge of taxation and a knowledge of bureaucracy involved. Yeah. I'd argued in the, at, that at one stage for a wealth tax when I was Treasury Minister, and the officials completely out-argued us, because the, the actual costs of administering a, bure, or a, a wealth tax, you know, what do you do about works of art and so on, uh, were very considerable. So, the, uh, I mean, I, I was aware of this big gulf between the technical experts, the administrators, the, the lawyers, and the economists who saw various goals there. And Paul Johnson is the example. If you want somebody who really knows all his onions, it's Paul Johnson. Absolutely. And, and you can trust him, mm. because he's got no axe to grind. He's completely objective. Then in 1996, after a bit of lobbying from some of his closest allies, Dick Taverne became a member of the House of Lords. He sits as a Lib Dem, but what's a good Lib Dem doing in the Lords when what they really want to do is abolish it? I am against the House of Lords. I would love to get rid of the House of Lords. And I keep seeing possible ways in which we might do it. Uh, but we're always flouted. I think the uh, House of Lords won't last long. If Labour gets the next election, I think at last they will really tackle the sort of basic questions in our constitution. Do you think Conservative Prime Ministers, particularly perhaps Boris Johnson, but others too, have sort of helped expedite that a bit in the last yes, year or two by the certainly. number of people they've been putting into it? Oh, certainly, yes. Oh, I think there's... A, but, but the politicians don't have the guts to take notice of it a lot of the time. I think Gordon Brown actually is working on it in the Working Party. I despair at the way in which we haven't cared about constitution. No party's cared about it, uh, except for the right wing of the Conservative Party. Uh, but I think the Brown Working Party is going to be very important. It's going to look at the fundamentals. Now 94, Dick Deverne remains a committed Europhile. It was his enthusiasm for the common market, which later became the EU, which saw him kicked out of the Labour Party. But he believes the 2016 referendum does not mean that the pro-European argument was lost. It was just very badly argued, including by one familiar face. 
I see a lot of, lot of people I've talked to think that in about two years' time we'll be members of the single market. And once we're members of the single market, we'll back in. And you, people say, well, will the Europeans have us? Because we weren't very popular members when we were in the European Union. Well, they'd be crazy not to have us because, again, you know, answering Atchison's question, where's our future lie now that we no longer have an empire? The answer is it must be Europe. I suppose that there'll be people listening to this who think, well, we had all these arguments, people made all these arguments during the referendum and since. Yeah. And it hasn't, it, people still voted for us to leave all those institutions. I know they do, but there was a very carefully cam- planned campaign against with terrific press support. And there was an absolutely hopeless campaign in favour. <laughs> My only experience of the referendum, I didn't do very much, uh, was um, to join a, a pro-referendum bus. Right. Now, Boris's <laughs> bus had crowds of thousands. Yeah, yeah. And this is a bus which was to be led by that pro-European Liz Truss. <laughs> and it's the most stupid and incompetent operation, operation I've ever dealt with. Because when it got onto the bus, there were about five people in it. And when they get to Norwich, where we're supposed to be, there was an audience of about five people. So Trust made a little speech, and I made a little speech, and we all went home. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.